Week 4 Lecture, February 7th, Technology, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, and Developing a Search Strategy. Hello, lovely students. This week, I want to discuss technology's impact on academic research and how to develop a search strategy that will get you the information you want and need for your work this semester. First, technology. On the whole, I think most of us realize the benefits of technology. It has certainly made research a lot easier, although I do sometimes miss the challenge of finding an obscure reference book in the old musty library stacks. We have worlds of information at our fingertips. That can sometimes also be a challenge, though, for two reasons. One, the avalanche of information can feel impossible to get through. And two, not all information has equal value. For that reason, the first link in this week's folder is an introduction to the darker side of the web search process. I think it's critically important for researchers and media consumers to understand how they get the information they do. That awareness reminds us not to accept information at face value and helps us think about what we're not seeing. Of particular importance is the concept of algorithms, which the authors of Introduction to College Research describe as, quote, step-by-step -step instructions that computers follow to complete tasks, solve problems, and make automated decisions, end quote. In and of themselves, algorithms are value neutral. That is, they're not good or bad. They're designed to predict human behavior and desires. They often benefit us because they make it easier to get useful info about things we might want to buy or content we might want to see on our social media feeds. That never-ending YouTube playlist that pops up whenever you watch a video is based on your past and predicted viewing behavior. The challenge with algorithms, of course, is that humans design them. While computers aren't inherently biased, humans are and those biases can come through in innumerable ways when we're hanging out online. Algorithmic bias helps create what internet activist and author Eli Pariser calls filter bubbles. The best way to explain what a filter bubble is might be to give you an example. Imagine you're doing a small group research project for class. You and two classmates want to identify the historic causes of and influences on the Israel-Palestine conflict. You design a search strategy that includes the keywords and terms you'll use on Google. Each of you conducts the same exact Google searches, and you all come up with different results. Very different results. Results that are ideologically divided. These differences are largely driven by highly personalized recommendations resulting from algorithms that track your search histories, social media activity, etc. Each of you has effectively found yourself in a filter bubble because the search results you get are likely to reflect what the algorithm assumes is your ideological view based on past search behavior. That means it's very difficult for you to hear opposing views. Your perceived opinions and beliefs are continuously confirmed rather than challenged, so the research you produce is going to be similarly self-affirming. And it's hard to pop filter bubbles because they tend to follow you around. Think about how often you're asked to sign into accounts, even for websites where you don't spend a lot of time. Every time you sign in, your activity on that site is recorded such that every subsequent time you sign in, recommendations will likely be personalized based on your history there. Sometimes the results are benign. For example, I like to read Inside Higher Ed, a news site with blogs and articles about various higher education related topics. But because reading the articles, all of which are free, requires signing in, every time I visit the site, I see recommendations based on my reading history. Frankly, unless I'm very deliberate about how I use the site, it's hard to know what I'm not seeing. You can see why this would be a challenge for research, right? If you and two classmates are searching for the same terms and getting different results, whose results are more credible and reliable? Should you rely on anyone's results? If not, what do you do next? 
As I said, it's hard to pop filter bubbles, but it's not impossible. There are a few tricks that can help, though they don't completely solve the problem. One strategy I recommend is using a tool like DuckDuckGo to search privately. You'll find a brief video about DuckDuckGo in this week's folder. Now, of course, consider the context. It's very clearly an advertisement in which they bash Google for contributing to filter bubbles, and it's 11 years old. I like it, though, because it gives you a quick and clear explanation of how filter bubbles occur. And truthfully, I found DuckDuckGo to be a solid and free tool for locating information outside my own ideological views. You can use it online or download a browser extension. There are, of course, other ways to search privately. You can use the private browsing function with any browser. For example, open a private window in Firefox or an incognito window in Chrome. Your search histories are not tracked when you use these tools, which makes it slightly easier to see a wide variety of results in the search process. In the How-To Videos section of our Blackboard page, I've included a screencast on how to use these strategies, so take a look if you're interested. The other thing to keep in mind when it comes to online research is that knowing is half the battle. This used to be the slogan for G.I. Joe, in case you don't get my occasional references to 80s and 90s cartoons. Simply being aware that the search results you get are heavily influenced by your existing beliefs, as the algorithms see them anyway, means you can more proactively search for other views. This can be challenging, of course. Many times we believe what we believe so firmly that it's hard to understand how other people see the issue. If and when this happens, I am very happy to offer you advice. You may want to ask family or friends if they can help you identify blind spots too, or visit sites that can help you see the nuances in the topic you're researching. I've created a folder on the side of our Blackboard page containing research tools that may help you, along with links to how-to videos for tools you may need a little help using effectively. One good site is All Sides, which produces media bias ratings that show you where on the political spectrum common media sites fall. All Stances, from the All Sides group, is also helpful. You can search for issues that are commonly debated to see a variety of perspectives on them. Procon.org is another helpful source. I'm sure there are other tools, but you get the idea. Know there is a high likelihood you're not getting the full story and seek out other opinions. But you haven't escaped all the research landmines yet. You must be careful how you present various sides to the issue you're researching. One common logical fallacy researchers, journalists, and others commit is called false equivalence. I found that students fall into this trap precisely because they're trying to present multiple viewpoints on their topics. Researchers must be careful not to assume that all the views on their topics are equally valid or credible, because generally, they're not. It's possible some perspectives are driven by conspiratorial thinking or misinformation, both of which we'll talk about more next week. It's also possible that people on one side of the issue simply have not based their perspectives on any kind of reliable evidence, which makes it hard to trust their sources. Let me give you an example. Let's say your research question asks, why did the U.S. experience a higher death rate due to COVID than other developed nations in 2020? Your thesis is, the U.S. experienced a higher death rate among COVID patients than other developed nations in 2020 because many state governors did not act quickly enough to enact lockdowns and other safety measures. Your question is based on verifiable data about the high rate of COVID deaths in the U.S. compared to other similar countries, but of course your thesis is debatable. You want to make sure you give fair attention to various perspectives on the issue, so you search for information across the political spectrum, especially because you've honed in on politicians' roles in the situation. You come across one claim that says in 2020, U.S. hospitals earned federal money for every patient that died from COVID in their care. You haven't heard that before, and you think it's interesting, 
So you do a little more research and fall down a Google rabbit hole that takes you to more and more sources making similar claims. You present it as a valid claim in your final paper, making sure to cite all your sources. The problem? This claim has been debunked by fact checkers everywhere many times over. It's a conspiracy theory, and conspiracy theories generally don't merit the same attention as evidence-backed information in a research paper. You have committed the false equivalence logical fallacy. It happens to the best of us, and it's admirable to want to ensure you pay equal attention to valid research claims. It's also true that some conspiracy theories have merit, which we'll also talk about next week. So it can be difficult to know exactly when to bypass these sources and when to discuss them. My advice in these situations is to pay attention to the red flags that you may be looking at a conspiracy theory. And while you can certainly talk about fringe beliefs related to your topic, don't make the mistake of giving them equal airtime to more evidence-based claims. All sides of an issue are not equally valid or valuable to your claim. Now that we've talked about the more problematic aspects of technology and research and logical fallacies, let's talk about the many ways we can use tech to our advantage. Researchers are especially interested in AI-powered research tools right now. And why wouldn't we be? They can make research tasks much more efficient, which I don't see as a bad thing. What I do see as potentially problematic is letting these tools do all the work for you as in using ChatGPT to write your paper instead of citing it as one among many sources. I'm okay with you using ChatGPT and other AI tools for research, but I want you to understand their limitations. You should certainly never base your entire research project or paper on AI tools, because just like algorithms, they can be wrong and biased. There's an article in this week's materials that discusses nine significant issues with ChatGPT that could negatively impact your research. As long as you're aware of them, it could still be a useful tool for you. One thing a lot of students don't realize is that when they use a tool like ChatGPT, they need to know how to use it well, and that usually means learning how to write effective prompts. I've included a link to a WikiHow article I found very useful in the prompt engineering process, as it's called. I've also included a link to an APA style blog about how to cite ChatGPT and other AI tools in the most current APA style. I hope you'll use these tools the way they're meant to be used. That is, I am not okay with you having them write your entire paper. I am also not okay with you using only AI tools to conduct your research for you. But I am okay with you exploring their usefulness. I've included a folder of some tech tools you may find helpful. They're not all AI related, but they can help you in various ways with the research process. I encourage you to explore the most effective ways to use them. And finally, let's talk about your search strategy. It really helps to have a plan when you're conducting research, and developing a search strategy is one simple way to make one. It's also helpful to understand how the search process works so you can design an effective strategy for yourself. In class, we'll work on brainstorming a list of keywords and phrases related to your research topic, but we'll also discuss the value of Boolean search terms. I often forget to use them myself, but they can cut down the time it takes to find useful information by quite a lot. The most basic terms are AND, OR, and NOT usually typed in all caps between search terms. They're great for helping you expand or narrow your search as needed. It's also useful to remember that putting quotation marks around your search term means Google, or whatever search engine you use, will search for that exact phrase rather than for the individual words in it. One risk for every researcher, however, is inserting confirmation bias into our search terms. Consider how you might phrase your search in a way that virtually guarantees you'll find only biased information that reflects your own views. I like the example in this week's reading on avoiding confirmation bias because it's so direct. Imagine you're wondering whether 9-11 was a hoax. So you type, was 9-11 a hoax, into Google. 
what kind of results do you think you'll find? Well, hoax is a really loaded term, so I suspect you're going to get a lot of results that say yes, 9-11 was actually a hoax. Remember, specific types of sources are more likely to use loaded terms like hoax, right? They're mostly conspiracy theorists, and while you may want to talk about that viewpoint in a research paper on the topic, it's certainly not the only type of source you want to find. One way you might avoid bias in this particular search, but still identify conspiratorial thinking about the topic, is by searching for phrases like alternative views of 9-11 or 9-11 conspiracy theories. And if you want to find more balanced views of the causes of 9-11, you might search for terms like causes of 9-11 or factors contributing to 9-11. When we're developing your search strategy in class, we'll talk about ways to avoid using loaded and biased language. That's it for now. I'll see you next week. Chapter 2, The Age of Algorithms, From Introduction to College Research, Learning Objectives. By the end of this chapter, you will be able to, one, describe algorithms and their pervasiveness, two, identify key concerns surrounding algorithmic bias, and three, recognize the psychological, physiological, and sociological effects of algorithms, the attention economy, and digital polarization. What are algorithms? Overview. According to Head and others, quote, everyone who has accessed the internet has experienced the personalizing actions of algorithms, whether they realize it or not. These invisible lines of code can track our interactions, trying to game our consumer habits and political leanings to determine what ads, news stories, and information we see. As tracking practices have become more common and advanced, it has become urgent to understand how these computer programs work and have widespread impact. How do students understand the hidden filters that influence what they see and learn, and shape what they think and who they are?" End quote. Algorithms are step-by-step -step instructions that computers follow to complete tasks, solve problems, and make automated decisions. They use data to make predictions about people, including their preferences, attributes, and behaviors. Algorithms power nearly everything we see online, including search engines, social media, video games, online dating, and smartphone apps. They're used to shape and filter content on the platforms many of us interact with daily, such as Google, YouTube, Instagram, Netflix, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, and Spotify. For example, algorithms determine which websites you see first in your Google search results, which posts you see on Facebook, and which videos YouTube recommends and autoplays for you. Data and Algorithms the following TED Talk with computer scientist Jennifer Golbeck provides a clear explanation of how data is collected on social media sites and how this can be used to create algorithms that predict attributes like political affiliation, intelligence, sexual orientation, relationship strength, and even drug and alcohol usage. Just a note here, if you want to watch the TED Talk, you are very welcome to do that, but you don't need to do it for this class, so I'm not going to include it in the audio version. The influence of algorithms. According to Head and others, quote, we live in an era of ambient information. Amidst the daily flood of digital news, memes, opinion, advertising, and propaganda, there is rising concern about how popular platforms and the algorithms they increasingly employ may influence our lives, deepen divisions in society, and foment polarization, extremism, and distrust, end quote. Positive and negative. As companies, governments, and other organizations continue to collect and analyze massive amounts of our data, the use of algorithms has become pervasive. In fact, many are referring to this period as the age of algorithms, or the algorithm era, 
and researchers are considering the significant impacts that these tools may have, both positive and negative. There's no doubt that algorithms can be useful and help improve our lives. For example, it certainly saves a lot of time and frustration to be able to pull up a map on our phones and instantly determine the fastest way to reach our destination. However, as technology and social media scholar Dana Boyd has noted, quote, the same technology can be used to empower people or harm them. It all depends on who is using the information to what ends, end quote. Eni Mustafaraj, assistant professor of computer science at Wellesley College, similarly notes that, quote, if we want more people in the world to have access to the total human knowledge accessible on the internet, we need al algorithms. However, what we need to object against are the values driving the companies that own these algorithms, end quote. Concerns. What happens when algorithms are used to predict when college students are, quote unquote, cheating on a test, or to predict who should be hired for a job or who should get a loan? or to decide the type of information we see in our social media news feeds, or to calculate credit scores, or even to predict criminal behavior and determine prison sentences. Are Google search results really an unbiased presentation of the best available information on a research question? How do algorithms impact our perception of a research topic or of our own realities? One of the most prominent examples in recent history is the Facebook Cambridge Analytica data scandal, in which the personal profile data of at least 87 million Facebook users was harvested by a political consulting firm working for the Trump campaign. In this case, Cambridge Analytica used algorithms to develop psychographic profiles in order to more effectively direct its messaging and influence voter behavior in the 2016 US presidential election. And here, is an infographic called Life in the Age of Algorithms. It reads, data are everywhere, collected 24-7, and processed in real time and at vast scale. Platforms seek patterns in data to try to predict and influence behavior and personalize news and advertising based on guesses about individual preferences, creating the potential for us to experience different realities. Our lives are increasingly influenced by decision-making systems that build on correlations using artificial intelligence software that relies on incomplete data to make generalizations and amplifies existing biases at large scale. Information systems we depend on are shaped by a tech culture marked by narrow perspectives and overconfidence that rely on mining users' data and manipulating their behavior in ways that undermine our trust in news, politics, and each other. Algorithmic bias. According to Schmielinski, quote, although the impulse is to believe in the objectivity of the machine, we need to remember that algorithms were built by people, end quote. Overview and examples. Because we often assume that algorithms are neutral and objective, they can inaccurately project greater authority than human expertise. Thus, the pervasiveness of algorithms and their incredible potential to influence our society, politics, institutions, and behavior has been a source of growing concern. Algorithmic bias is one of those concerns. This occurs when algorithms reflect the implicit values of the humans involved in their creation or use, systematically, quote, replicating or even amplifying human biases, particularly those affecting protected groups, end quote. In search engines, for example, algorithmic bias can create search results that reflect racist, sexist, or other social biases, despite the presumed neutrality of the data. Here are just a few examples of algorithmic bias. An algorithm used by judges to predict whether defendants should be imprisoned or released on bail was found to be biased against African Americans. Amazon had to discontinue using a recruiting algorithm after discovering gender bias. 
The algorithm was penalizing any resume that contained the word women's in the text because the data was based on resumes historically submitted to Amazon, which were predominantly from white males. Princeton University researchers analyzed algorithms and found that they picked up on existing racial and gender biases. European names were perceived as more pleasant than those of African Americans, and the words woman and girl were more likely to be associated with the arts instead of science and math. Numerous articles have examined the role that YouTube's recommendation algorithm might play in radicalizing viewers. Challenging the Algorithms of Oppression Dr. Sophia U. Noble, Associate Professor at UCLA in the Departments of Information Studies and African American Studies, is the author of the book Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. She's also co-director of the UCLA Center for Critical Internet Inquiry and co-founder of the Information Ethics and Equity Institute. In the video below, Dr. Noble discusses her findings about algorithmic bias in Google search results, particularly for women of color. Hi, my name is Safia Umoja Noble, and I'm an assistant professor in the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. My research looks at racist and sexist algorithmic bias and the way in which people are marginalized and oppressed by digital media platforms. I spent 15 years in corporate marketing and advertising, working for some of the largest Fortune 100 brands in the United States. We were starting to redirect significant portions of our advertising media buying dollars online and thinking about, in fact, how to game Google Search and Yahoo to elevate the brands and amplify the messages. And so at the moment that I was leaving corporate America and moving into academia, the public was increasingly falling in love with Google. And this led me to thinking that this was a space and a place that needed to be looked at more closely. It was interesting to see this total diversion of public goods, um, public knowledge in libraries being shifted into a corporate, privately held company. When we go to places like Google Search, the public generally thinks that what they'll find there will be credible and fairly representing different kinds of ideas, people, and spheres of knowledge. And so this is what really prompted a six-year inquiry into this phenomenon of thinking about misrepresentation on the internet, particularly when people are using search engines. And that culminated in my new book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. People think of algorithms as simply a mathematical formulation. But in fact, algorithms are really about automated decisions. In 2009, I was kind of joking around, in fact, with a colleague, and I was telling him that I was really interested in what's happening with Google. And just kind of offhand, he said to me, oh yeah, you should see what happens when you Google black girls. Of course, I immediately did the search, found that pornography was the primary way that black girls, Latina girls, Asian girls were represented. That started a whole deeper line of inquiry about the way in which misrepresentation happens for women of color on the internet and what some of the broader social consequences of that are. But in my work, I look at the way that these platforms are designed to amplify certain voices and silence other voices. How does that come about? What is that phenomenon about? What's the role of capital or advertising dollars in driving certain results to the first page? What do the results mean in kind of a broader social, historical, economic context? 
so I contextualize the results that I find to show how incredibly problematic this is because it further marginalizes people who are already living in the margin, people who are already suffering from systemic oppression. And yet again, these results show up in these platforms as if they are credible, fair, objective, neutral ideas. In the end, I call for alternatives. And I argue um, strongly that we need to have uh, things like public interest search that are not driven by commercial biases. And I put out some ideas about um, what it means to imagine and create alternatives in our public information sphere that are based on a different set of ethics. If anything, I think that this book is the kind of book that will help us reframe the idea that we should just Google it and everything will be fine. Fighting Bias in Algorithms. Joy Bolamwini, MIT researcher, Rhodes Scholar, Fulbright Fellow, poet of code, and founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, found that the algorithms powering facial recognition software systems were failing to recognize darker skinned complexions because they were based on data sets that were largely white and male. Now she's committed to fighting bias in machine learning, which she calls the coded gaze. In the following video, she explains her work with facial recognition and also asks important questions about how algorithms influence critical decisions, like who gets hired or fired? Do you get that loan? Do you get insurance? Are you admitted into the college you wanted to get into? Do you and I play the same price for the same product purchased on the same platform? And just a note here too, that Joy Bolamwini's TED Talk called How I'm Fighting Bias in Algorithms is a really interesting watch. It's only about nine minutes long, but it's not required for this class, so I'm not going to include it in the audio narration. Weapons of Math Destruction. Kathy O'Neill has written several books on data science, including Weapons of Math Destruction. She was the former director of the LEAD program in data practices at Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. In the following video, she explains how algorithms are not fair and objective and may in fact, quote, automate the status quo and codify sexism and bigotry. She concludes that these secret black box algorithms created by private companies can hide ugly truths, often with destructive results. Kathy O'Neill's TED Talk is called The Era of Blind Faith and Big Data Must End. And that's also a really fascinating watch, about 13 minutes long, but I'm not going to include it here. The attention economy. According to Crawford, quote, attention is a resource. A person has only so much of it, end quote. And according to Caulfield, quote, how do you focus your attention? How do you protect it? How do you apply it productively and strategically and avoid giving it to bad actors or dubious sources? And how do you do that in a world where decisions about what to engage with are made in seconds, not minutes or hours, end quote. Overview. In a world where information is abundant, where we are overloaded and overwhelmed with information on a daily basis, attention is the scarcity. Algorithms are being used by social media platforms and news organizations to keep our attention focused on their websites. These and other digital platforms have discovered that the best way to keep us engaged with their websites is to promote sensational, divisive, or outrage-inducing content. Emotional responses are what keep us clicking, liking, commenting, and sharing. When trying to capture attention, our anger, fear, and disgust are a signal in the noise. According to McNamee, quote, people tend to react more to inputs that land low on the brainstem. 
fear and anger produce a lot more engagement and sharing than joy. The result is that the algorithms favor sensational content over substance. End quote. Engagement. According to Tobias Rose Stockwell in This is How Your Fear and Outrage Are Being Sold for Profit, quote, Many of the biggest problems we face in this moment as a society result from decisions being made by the hidden creators of our digital world, the designers, developers, and editors that create and curate the media we consume. They do this by focusing on one oversimplified metric, one that supports advertising as its primary source of revenue. This metric is called engagement, and emphasizing it, above all else, has subtly and steadily changed the way we look at the news, our politics, and each other. End quote. And here is a picture of a Facebook post that reads, This will make you cry. Posts that emotionally hijack your attention will do better on social media. Tobias Rose Stockwell, a writer and technologist focused on ethical design, explains how emotional reactions are strong indicators of engagement, and how divisive content that captures our attention will be shown in our feeds first. We then share our moral judgments with our own followers, creating what he calls outrage cascades that dominate our conversations online. And here's an image of two definitions. The first one is of engagement, as the metric by which companies evaluate the number of clicks, likes, shares, and comments associated with their content. Also, the currency of the attention economy. The second definition is of affective engagement, which means an emotional reaction to content based on flashes of positive or negative feeling. Indeed, in their report on information disorder, researchers Wardle and Derekshan emphasized that, quote, social networks are driven by the sharing of emotional content. The architecture of these sites is designed such that every time a user posts content and it is liked, commented upon, or shared further, their brain releases a tiny hit of dopamine, end quote. The most notable example of this idea? Most of our content feeds and timelines are no longer sorted chronologically or by relevance. Instead, the decision about which content to show us is based on how likely we are to engage with it. Algorithms and polarization. According to Caulfield, quote, at its best, the net gives us voices and perspectives we would have never discovered otherwise. At its worst, our net-mediated digital world becomes an endless stream of binary actions. Like, don't like. Share, pass. Agree, disagree all in an architecture that slowly segments and slips us into our correct market position a click at a time, delivering us a personalized, segregated world. We can't laud the successes of one half of this equation without making a serious attempt to deal with the other side of the story." End quote. Polarization for profit. Leading scholars in this field have argued that digital platforms are using algorithms to promote polarization for profit. That is, Corporations use these algorithms to engage and outrage, to knowingly cause divisiveness and polarization, ultimately for one simple purpose, to sell ads. In other words, these platforms have used, quote, massive surveillance of our behavior, online and off, to generate increasingly accurate, automated predictions of what advertisements we are most susceptible to, and what content will keep us clicking, tapping, and scrolling down a bottomless feed, end quote. For a fascinating explanation of this, watch the following TED Talk from Zainab Tufeki, techno-sociologist and associate professor at UNC School of Information and Library Science. And again, this is a good TED Talk. It's called We're Building a Dystopia Just to Make People Click on Ads, but it's about 23 minutes long, so not included here. 
Filter Bubbles The Problem with Personalization According to an anonymous student quoted in Head and Others, quote, I'm more concerned about like the larger scale trend of predicting what we want, but then also predicting what we want in ways that push a lot of people towards the same cultural and political endpoint, end quote. One significant and widely discussed feature of the age of algorithms has been the personalization of information we see online. Algorithms will filter, sort, and personalize information in an attempt to provide content that is relevant to our interests, based on, for example, our search histories and patterns of past online activities. This type of algorithmic personalization may actually distort, manipulate, and amplify our own worldviews by creating so-called filter bubbles that limit our exposure to outside perspectives. Here, filter bubbles refers to the intellectual isolation that can result from algorithms predicting what information you would want to see based on behavioral data like search history, clicks, views, likes, and location. This may limit our exposure to opposing viewpoints and confirm our existing beliefs. According to Wardle and Derekshan, quote, using algorithms to deliver content that we are most likely to enjoy these platforms reinforce our worldviews and allow us to stay encased in our safe, comfortable echo chambers. The fundamental problem is that filter bubbles worsen polarization by allowing us to live in our own online echo chambers and leaving us with only opinions that validate, rather than challenge, our own ideas." End quote. Roger McNamee, an early Facebook investor turned critic, considers filter bubbles to be, quote, the most important tool used by Facebook and Google to hold user attention because they lead to an unending stream of posts that confirm each user's existing beliefs. The result is polarization. Everyone sees a different version of the internet tailored to create the illusion that everyone else agrees with them. Further, this continuous reinforcement of existing beliefs tends to entrench those beliefs more deeply, while also making them more extreme and resistant to contrary facts." End quote. For an explanation of this problem, listen to Eli Pariser's Filter Bubbles TED Talk based on his influential 2011 book of the same name. Mark Zuckerberg, a journalist, was asking him a question about the news feed. And the journalist was asking him, you know, why is this so important? And Zuckerberg said, a squirrel dying in your front yard may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. And I want to talk about what a web based on that idea of relevance might look like. So when I was growing up in a, in a really rural area in Maine, you know, the internet meant something very different to me. It, it meant uh, a connection to the world. It meant something that would connect us all together. And I, I was sure that it was going to be great for democracy and for our society. But there's this kind of shift in how information is flowing online. And it's invisible. And if we don't pay attention to it, it could be a real problem. So I first noticed this uh, in a place I spend a lot of time, my Facebook page. I'm progressive politically, big surprise, but I've always uh, you know, gone out of my way to meet conservatives. I like hearing what they're thinking about. I like seeing what they link to. I like learning a thing or two. And so I was kind of surprised when I noticed one day that the conservatives had disappeared from my Facebook feed. And uh, what it turned out was going on was that Facebook was looking at which links I clicked on. And it was noticing that actually I was clicking more on my liberal friends' links than on my conservative friends' links. And without consulting me about it, it had edited them out. They disappeared. So Facebook isn't the only place that's doing this kind of invisible algorithmic editing of the web. Google's doing it too. If I search for something and you search for something, even right now at the very same time, we may get very different search results. Even if you're logged out, one engineer told me, there are 57 signals that Google looks at. Everything from what kind of computer you're on to what kind of browser you're using to where you're located that it uses to personally tailor your query results. Think about it for a second. 
there is no standard Google anymore. And you know, the funny thing about this is that it's hard to see. You can't see how different your search results are from anyone else's. But uh, a couple of weeks ago, I asked a bunch of friends to Google Egypt and to send me screenshots of what they got. So here's my friend uh, Scott's screenshot. And here's my friend Daniel's screenshot. When you put them side by side, you don't even have to read the links to see how different these two pages are. But when you do read the links, it's really quite remarkable. Daniel didn't get anything about the protests in Egypt at all in his first page of Google results. Scott's results were full of them. And this was the big story of the day at that time. That's how different these results are becoming. So it's not just Google and Facebook either. You know, this is uh, something that's sweeping the web. There are a whole host of companies that are doing this kind of personalization. Yahoo News, the biggest news site on the internet, is now personalized. Different people get different things. Huffington Post, Washington Post, New York Times, all flirting with personalization in various ways. And where this, this moves us very quickly toward a world in which the internet is showing us what it thinks we want to see, but not necessarily what we need to see. As Eric Schmidt said, it'll be very hard for people to watch or consume something that has not, in some sense, been tailored for them. So I do think this is a problem. And uh, I think if you take all of these filters together, if you take all of these algorithms, you get what I call a filter bubble. And your filter bubble is kind of your own personal, unique universe of information that you live in online. And what's in your filter bubble depends on who you are, and it depends on what you do. But the thing is that you don't decide what gets in. And more importantly, you don't actually see what gets edited out. So one of the problems with the filter bubble was discovered by some researchers at Netflix. And they were looking at the Netflix queues, and they noticed something kind of funny that a lot of us probably have noticed, which is there's some movies that just sort of zip right up and out to our houses. They enter the queue, they just zip right out. So Iron Man zips right out, right? And waiting for Superman can wait for a really long time. What they discovered was that in our Netflix queues, there's kind of this epic struggle going on between our future aspirational selves and our more impulsive present selves. You know, we all want to be someone who has watched Rashomon. But right now, we want to watch Ace Ventura for the fourth time. <laughs> so the best editing gives us a bit of both. It gives us a little bit of Justin Bieber and a little bit of Afghanistan. It gives us some information vegetables. It gives us some information dessert. And the challenge with these kind of algorithmic filters, these personalized filters, is that because they're mainly looking at what you click on first, you know, you don't, it can throw off that balance. And instead of a balanced information diet, you can end up surrounded by information junk food. So what this suggests is actually that we may have the story about the internet wrong. In a broadcast society, you know, this is how the founding mythology goes, right? In a broadcast society, there were these gatekeepers, the editors, and they controlled the flows of information. And along came the internet, and it swept them out of the way, and it allowed all of us to connect together, and it was awesome. But that's not actually what's happening right now. What we're seeing is more of a passing of the torch from human gatekeepers to algorithmic ones. And the thing is that the algorithms don't yet have the kind of embedded ethics that the editors did. So if algorithms are going to curate the world for us, if they're going to decide what we get to see and what we don't get to see, then we need to make sure that they're not just keyed to relevance. We need to make sure that they also show us things that are uncomfortable or challenging or important. This is what TED does, right? Other points of view. And the thing is, we've actually kind of been here before as a society. In 1915, it's not like newspapers uh, were sweating a lot about their civic responsibilities. Then people kind of noticed that they were doing something really important. That in fact, you couldn't have a functioning democracy if citizens didn't get a good flow of information. That the newspapers were critical because they were acting as the filter and that journalistic ethics developed. It wasn't perfect, but it got us through the last century. And so now, we're kind of back in 1915 on the web. And we need the new gatekeepers to encode that kind of responsibility into the code that they're writing. You know, I know there are a lot of people here from Facebook and from Google, Larry and Sergey, who, you know, people who have helped build the web as it is, and I'm grateful for that. 
but we really need to you to make sure that these algorithms have encoded in them a sense of the public life, a sense of civic responsibility. We need you to make sure that they're transparent enough that we can see what the rules are that determine what gets through our filters. And we need you to give us some control so that we can decide what gets through and what doesn't. Because I think we really need the internet to be that thing that we all dreamed of it being. We need it to connect us all together. We need it to introduce us to new ideas and new people and different perspectives. And it's not going to do that if it leaves us all isolated in a web of one. Thank you. New research on filter bubbles. A 2018 study has called the filter bubble premise into question, finding that polarization could actually increase upon exposure to opposing views. Most notably, this study found that, quote, Republicans who followed a liberal Twitter bot became substantially more conservative, end quote. This suggests that exposure to opposing viewpoints, which are often presented with a divisive and moralistic tone in order to capture our attention, may actually backfire and create further polarization by causing negative or defensive reactions. An interesting 2017 study examined polarization in the U.S. across different age ranges and surprisingly found that, quote, growth in polarization in recent years is largest for the demographic groups least likely to use the internet and social media, end quote namely those over 75 years old. Indeed, in a 2020 study, students expressed concerns about the ability of older adults to navigate systems designed for algorithmic attention, with one student noting that, quote, everyone was so focused on making sure that kids learned that they forgot they also needed to teach grandparents, end quote. This idea might be further understood with the results of two 2017 studies which showed that, users of social media and search engines experience more diversity than non-users, and people who are involved in politics online are, quote, more likely to double-check questionable information they find on the internet and social media, including by searching online for additional sources in ways that will pop filter bubbles, end quote. Conclusion. This chapter introduced the often concerning effects of living in the age of algorithms, including algorithmic bias, the attention economy, and digital polarization. These overlapping and intersecting concepts will greatly shape the type of information we see online and will influence our opinions, behaviors, decisions, and worldviews. According to Rose Stockwell, quote, despite the emerging awareness of many of the terrible side effects of these platforms, we are dependent on them. They've become our local news channels, our emergency communication systems, our town squares, and the primary windows into the lives of our loved ones and governments. They are a critical part of how we rally around shared causes and engage with our politics. How do we reconcile their toxicity with their utility?" End quote. So what can we do? We are not suggesting that you completely abandon social media and other digital platforms like Google and YouTube. Instead, our aim is to increase awareness and understanding of the information environments that we inhabit on a daily basis so that we can take advantage of the benefits they offer and use them more effectively. When you search online, you expect your results to be the same as everyone else's. In a famous TED Talk by Eli Pariser, he spoke about how Google has actually been altering its results for each person. To test this, we had over 100 people search for the same election topics at the same time. Like Eli, we also found that people were getting different results. 
even when in the same country and when signed out of Google. Here's how it works. When you use Google applications, they collect your personal information from search and click history. Google then figures out where you live, what you like, and who your friends are. It uses this profile to put you in a bubble. Inside the bubble are results Google thinks you'll like. Outside the bubble are results that got pushed to page two and beyond. You search for raw information, but you're getting more of what you already agree with. They both searched for Obama, yet he gets Fox News while he gets the LA Times. So the question is not what are you getting, but what are you missing? You can break out of your filter bubble by switching to DuckDuckGo. We're a search engine that gives you unfiltered results by not collecting any personal information in the first place. We also have better instant answers and less spam. Give us a try and see what you've been missing. All right, so I've got a few burning questions for you. Who's the better Chris, Evans or Hemsworth? Should you use Apple Music or Spotify? Which is better, DCEU or MCU? Some questions just defy easy answers. Well, not in that last case, but you get my point. Sometimes there is no consensus on what the truth is. And when you're talking about important issues like policy decisions that affect all kinds of people, that makes for some good journalistic analysis. Topics like, should race be considered in college admissions? Should 16-year-olds vote? Should there be a carbon tax? But not every topic warrants a both sides approach. Some viewpoints are simply not backed by empirical evidence or are based on false information. And journalists have to be really careful not to present them as legit debates. If they do, they are creating a false equivalence. So how can you spot false equivalence in journalism? First of all, what is false equivalence? It's when you set up two opposing sides of an argument and make it look like they hold equal weight, when really, they don't. I got an example for you. Take genetically modified foods or GMOs. The science is pretty clear. GMO foods aren't harmful to your health. This has been validated in peer-reviewed journals, yet you often find articles and news segments about GMO foods where non-experts and interest groups question the safety of GMOs. And presenting both of these views as valid is actually illogical. A false equivalence. These two sides don't deserve equal time in a news story. Not even close. One is based on scientific consensus and the other is based on vague speculation by interest groups and non-experts. The logic of comparing them is flawed. So now that you get what false equivalence is, why does it happen? Well, it can be tricky for journalists to avoid, especially when news is breaking and reporters are scrambling to fact check a story and be the first in line to publish it. Enter misinformation and propaganda. Propagandists try to persuade people to buy into a particular cause or belief. They often take advantage of the chaos of breaking news and spread rumors and conspiracy theories on social media. They get really sneaky to make a phony post seem real. They create a bunch of fake accounts and then use those accounts to like and comment on the post. Even trained journalists can fall for false posts when they are shared widely by real-looking accounts on places like Twitter or Facebook. And it's easiest to get fooled during breaking news events. Online combos start on social media, where there's no focus on fact-checking. These platforms distribute more information than any other institution in history, but they aren't doing a good job of checking for what's real and what's not. And propagandists don't just manipulate journalists on social media, they also know how to game news programs. In an effort to be balanced, news shows often bring on people with different views to debate each other, leading to those screaming matches that go viral. If you think that's trivial, I can't believe you're actually a physician. Look, this is the most studied Now, when one, not at all credible side, comes on to spew false information or distort the facts is treated the same as the factual side is. Just being on the program legitimizes it. Then those clickbaity sound bites spread on social media and we all end up engulfed in a toxic misinformation wildfire. So with all this manipulation going on, how can journalists stop the spread of misinformation to the public? 
We thought it would be a good idea to talk to a real journalist about how they deal with false equivalents. Meet Marisa Lagos. She covers politics for KQED, so she has to think about this stuff all the time. So could you give us some tips on how to avoid false equivalents? Absolutely. My number one tip is to think like a journalist, and that means to be skeptical. Do your own fact-checking. Don't just accept something somebody's saying just because they're on TV or they're in a certain newspaper. Tip number two would be to check your sources. So when somebody says something, when you're reading it, or when you see them on TV, think about where they're coming from. What's their point of view? What's their agenda? Understanding the reason somebody might be making a certain argument is really important so that you can make your own call about how valid that is. Make sure that when you're talking to people or you're, say, looking at different types of out news outlets, that it's not all coming from kind of the same place. And that also means to sort of check your own biases and question maybe why do you feel a certain way about something? Is that because of your own life experience? So kind of back to the first point, be skeptical of everyone, including yourself. There you have it. If you think more like a journalist, you can avoid the traps of false equivalents. Recognize it when you see it and think twice before hitting that share button. What are a couple examples of false equivalents that you've seen recently? Let us know in the comments below. And if you like this video, check out this episode we did on how to spot bad science reporting. You'll be glad you did. It'll make sense when you watch it. And last but not least, give us some love and like and subscribe. And stay above the noise, y'all. Peace out. False Equivalence, Why It's So Dangerous by Annalise Wunderlich on the KQED website, June 13th, 2019. Not every topic warrants a both-sides approach. Some viewpoints are simply not backed by empirical evidence or are based on false information. And journalists have to be careful not to present them as legit debates. If they do, they are creating a false equivalence. What is false equivalence? It's when you set up two opposing sides of an argument and make it look like they hold equal weight when really they don't. And presenting both of these views as valid is a logical fallacy or a false equivalence. Why do false equivalences happen in journalism? When news is breaking, journalists are often faced with making decisions quickly without much time for fact-checking. Propagandists, people who want to use the media to spread a particular cause or belief, often take advantage of the chaos of breaking news to spread rumors and conspiracy theories. They often create false social media accounts and then use other false accounts to comment and like a post. Even trained journalists can fall for false posts when they're shared widely by real-looking accounts on places like Twitter or Facebook. False equivalences also happen when news outlets will invite two opposing sides on an issue to debate one another, but one side doesn't rely on solid evidence to back their argument. Both sides are given equal airtime and equal weight, creating a false impression of equivalence. The false argument will often spread on social media before it can be debunked. What role do social media companies play in spreading misinformation? This is a hotly debated question, and companies like Facebook distribute more information than any other institution in history. While they are constantly changing their policies and algorithms in an attempt to slow down the spread of fake posts from dubious sources, they have yet to develop a consistent or effective way to combat the spread of misinformation on their platforms. What can I do to avoid falling for false equivalents? Be skeptical. Just because someone is on TV or appears in a social media post doesn't always mean that they are legitimate experts on a topic. Always check the sources they're citing. Are they citing research from well-regarded academic or journalistic institutions? Do their websites look legit? And check your own biases. Are you being critical of the information you're consuming or are you looking for something to prove what you already believe? Challenge yourself by reading an opposing point of view and analyzing their arguments. How to Write Better Prompts for ChatGPT from the WikiHow website, last updated November 27, 2023. 
If you've ever interacted with an AI chatbot, you know that they rely on well-written prompts to understand you and respond appropriately. However, vague or overly broad prompts can sometimes generate irrelevant or incomplete responses, which can be frustrating. This is where prompt engineering comes in. A lot of research has been done on creating effective prompts that provide helpful context and get you the answers you want. In this article, we will provide you with some useful tips on how to craft clear, specific prompts that will help you get the most out of your ChatGPT interactions. One, give context. Briefly describe the topic or issue you want to discuss. Provide any necessary background information to make sure ChatGPT understands. For example, say, ChatGPT, I want to talk about reforming public education. Specifically, I'm interested in making college more affordable and accessible. Here are some examples. Note that the second line of each text provides context to the question, allowing GPT to provide better suited answers. ChatGPT, I want to discuss potential policy solutions for climate change. Specifically, I'm interested in options for transitioning to renewable energy and reducing emissions. ChatGPT, I need some advice. I'm struggling with balancing work responsibilities and spending time with family. Can we talk through some strategies for creating better work-life balance? ChatGPT, I'm thinking about adopting a dog from an animal shelter. Can we discuss some of the pros and cons of dog ownership and breed options that might suit my lifestyle? I live in an apartment, have limited outdoor space, and am away from home for eight to nine hours a day. ChatGPT, I'm taking an online course in art history to learn more about European paintings. For an upcoming assignment, I need to analyze a few of Claude Monet's famous Impressionist works. Can you give me some suggestions of paintings I should focus on and possible approaches for my analysis? ChatGPT, I'm training for my first marathon and trying to establish a good running schedule. I want to fit in speed work, tempo easy runs, long runs, strength and cross training within my busy weekly schedule. Can you provide any advice for organizing a marathon training regimen? Things I should be sure to include and consider with how much I can handle as a beginning runner? The specific prompts provided above are good because they have a clear and narrow focus, making it easier to provide helpful and actionable advice. Two, ask for a precise response. Rather than just raising a topic, ask ChatGPT for a specific reaction or task. For instance, ask the bot to summarize key arguments in an article in three sentences compare and contrast two policy options, evaluate pros and cons, or make a recommendation. Three, provide an example. Give ChatGPT an exact prompt to demonstrate the type of response you're looking for. For instance, say, ChatGPT, please summarize the key points from the attached article in three sentences, rather than the open-ended, what do you think about this article? You can also provide example answers to guide ChatGPT. This is called few-shot prompting. Example, this is a complete prompt. Text, I had a wonderful time at the beach today. The weather was perfect and the water was crystal clear. I enjoyed building sandcastles, playing volleyball, and soaking up the sun with my friends. It was a truly memorable and joyous day. Sentiment, positive. Text, the rundown old amusement park had clearly seen better days. Rusting rides that looked well past safe operating limits trash strewn about the premises, exorbitant prices for cheap food, and mile-long lines managed by apathetic teen staff did not make for an enjoyable family outing. Sentiment, negative. Text, 
Accepting the prestigious literary award, the renowned yet famously reclusive author delivered a moving speech highlighting the power of words to challenge assumptions, foster empathy, and drive positive change. ChatGPT, based on the context provided, would you say this sentiment is positive or negative? Four, keep it concise. Long-winded or rambling prompts will likely confuse ChatGPT and result in unfocused responses. Keep your initial prompt to one or two sentences. Follow up with additional prompts if needed for clarification. Five, follow up. Ask for clarification or expansion on particular points. Let ChatGPT know if a response is heading in the wrong direction and needs to be refocused. Examples. If ChatGPT summarizes an article in three sentences as you requested, but leaves out a key point, follow up by saying something like, thanks, that covers the main topics, but can you include the author's argument about X in your summary? If ChatGPT makes a claim or statement you disagree with or think needs nuance, ask for clarification. You might say, can you explain your reasoning behind that statement? Or, I see it differently. Here is my view. And then share your perspective. Then ask for ChatGPT's reaction to your view. The algorithm will often refine its information as you ask it more specific questions. If ChatGPT goes off topic or redirects the conversation in an unhelpful direction, kindly refocus the bot by restating your original prompt or question. For instance, let's get back to the issue of making college more affordable. What policy solutions would you suggest for lowering tuition costs? Six, avoid yes or no questions. Identify any yes or no questions. Look for prompts that start with words like, do you, did you, will I, should I. These typically require a one word response and limit discussion. Examples, do you think I'll enjoy this book? Did you agree with points made in the article? Should I ask for a raise at work? Reword the prompt as an open-ended question. Start with words like what, why, or how. This gives ChatGPT more options for responding and encourages engaging dialogue. Examples, what about this book do you think will appeal to me? Why did you agree or disagree with ideas presented in the article? How might I make a compelling case for earning a raise at my job? Follow up with additional open-ended questions. Keep the discussion going by probing ChatGPT's answers for more details, examples, reasoning, and depth. Remember to provide context and background as needed. Include any necessary additional information to help steer ChatGPT's responses in the most helpful direction. Describe your unique situation or priorities to receive customized advice. Examples. What other books would you recommend to me based on what I've enjoyed in the past? I especially enjoy science fiction books with complex plots and well-developed characters. Can you give an example from the article that supports your perspective? I found the argument around educational policy reform particularly unconvincing. My views tend to align more with position A. What key accomplishments or valuable skills have I gained this past year that warrant increased compensation? I have taken on additional responsibilities over the past 6 to 12 months, including training two new team members and reorganizing workflows to increase efficiency by 15%. My productivity and contributions are demonstrably greater, even in a challenging year. 7. Use chain of thought prompting. This method involves providing a series of connected prompts that ask an AI system like ChatGPT to engage in a sequence of reasoning steps before responding. Example prompt. The odd numbers in this group add up to an even number. 4, 8, 9, 15, 12, 2, 1. 
Answer. Adding all the odd numbers, 9, 15, and 1, gives 25. The answer is false. The odd numbers in this group add up to an even number, 15, 32, 5, 13, 82, 7, and 1. Answer? Question mark. One recently proposed technique is zero-shot chain-of-thought prompting. This method consists of adding the phrase, let's think step-by-step step to the initial prompt. The idea behind this is that simply instructing ChatGPT to think step-by-step step through a complex prompt without providing explicit examples may activate more systematic reasoning as the system determines how to logically break down its thought process on the fly. Example, I have a total of $100 to spend. I first spend $25 on lunch, then I go shopping and buy a new calculator for $35 and a notebook for $10. On my way home, I stop for gas and it costs me $12 to fill up my tank. How much money do I have left? Let's think step by step. A librarian has a total of 227 books to put on three shelves. She places the same number of books on each shelf. After shelving all the books, she realizes she has seven books left over that do not fit. How many books did she place on each shelf? Let's think step by step. Eight, use the self-ask technique. The self-ask method is an approach where the AI system asks itself additional follow-up questions before responding to the initial query. This requires you to provide ChatGPT with an example like this. You, question, who lived longer? Theodore Haker or Harry Vaughn Watkins? ChatGPT. Are follow-up questions needed here? Yes. ChatGPT. Follow-up. How old was Theodore Haker when he died? You. Intermediate answer. Theodore Haker was 65 years old when he died. ChatGPT. Follow-up. How old was Harry Vaughn Watkins when he died? You. Intermediate answer. Harry Vaughn Watkins was 69 years old when he died. ChatGPT. So the final answer is Harry Vaughn Watkins. This method can also be achieved by simply adding, ask any follow-up questions you need to answer this question correctly, step-by-step. Step. Nine, provide feedback. Make sure to let ChatGPT know if it responds helpfully. Say something like, thank you, that summary was very insightful. Or, I agree, those pros and cons were thoughtfully considered. Positive feedback will signal to ChatGPT how it should answer your follow-up questions. 10. Maintain an educational tone. Maintain a constructive educational tone if ChatGPT responds in a way that seems off or not useful. Rather than criticizing the bot, rephrase your follow-up prompt to steer the conversation productively. Model the type of thoughtful, respectful dialogue you want to cultivate. Tips. Ask ChatGPT to act as persona. For example, act as a copywriter, act as a maths teacher, act as a web developer, etc. Users report receiving higher quality answers by giving ChatGPT a persona related to their question. Ask ChatGPT to self-reflect on its answers by typing, why were you wrong? Research has shown self-reflection improves GPT-4's accuracy by 30%. And specify the desired response format, for example, bullet points or short paragraphs. Warnings. Training data of ChatGPT is limited up to September 2021, and it is not connected to the internet unless the user has access to the browsing plugin. Users should not rely on ChatGPT for answers requiring real-time access to information. ChatGPT can give incorrect or biased answers. 
users should avoid relying on ChatGPT for advice pertaining to legal or medical matters. Chapter 7, Search Strategies, from Introduction to College Research. Learning Objectives. By the end of this chapter, you will be able to, one, describe research questions and the process of creating one from a research topic, two, identify the main concepts in your research question, three, describe confirmation bias and how it can affect your research, and four, create a search statement and use various search tools to refine your results. And just a note here, the second page of this chapter, which is called Identifying What You Know and Don't Know, we're going to skip over that because we went through it for week two. Identifying the main concepts. Keywords. Your research question will be the foundation for your research process. The next step is to identify the main concepts within the research question that you created. Though many people type full questions word for word into online search engines, the algorithms of the search engines are programmed to pull out the most important keywords in what is typed into the search bar. Some of the words in your research question are irrelevant when it comes to finding information sources. Main concepts, also sometimes called keywords, key terms, and or key phrases, are almost always nouns. Words in your research question that are not likely to relate to the main concepts are words like the, is, affect, what, why, when, how, and are. When trying to identify the main concepts, think about what ideas and topics would need to be present in an information source for it to be relevant to you in your research. For example, how can divorce affect a student's GPA in high school? In the example above, the main concepts or keywords in the research question are divorce, student, GPA, and high school. These are the main concepts that will be the focus of your research. If an information source includes all of these concepts, then it is very likely to be relevant and useful to you. It's your job as a researcher to determine what is relevant to your research. Be aware that the main concepts from your research question serve as a base to launch your search for information, and the keywords selected to describe your main concepts are likely to evolve during the process. Searching is an iterative process. We try keywords, take a look at what we found, and if the results weren't good enough, edit our keywords and search again, often multiple times. Most of the time, the first keywords we try are not the best, even though Google may give us many results. It pays to search further for the sources that will help you the most. Be picky. Avoiding confirmation bias. What is confirmation bias? Here's a quick definition from the Encyclopedia Britannica. Quote, the tendency to process information by looking for or interpreting information that is consistent with one's existing beliefs. End quote. Although confirmation bias is typically unintentional, it is strong and widespread with many significant effects and real world implications. Impact on searching. Some psychologists describe confirmation bias as the selective collection of evidence that supports what one already believes, while ignoring or rejecting evidence that supports a different conclusion. Experiments have found repeatedly that people tend to test hypotheses in a one-sided way by searching for evidence consistent with their current beliefs. Rather than searching through all the relevant evidence, they phrase questions to receive an answer that supports their theory. One of the primary types of confirmation bias is the biased search for information. When you type a search or a question into Google, you will want to be careful that your choice of keywords does not unintentionally reflect a bias towards pre-existing beliefs or toward a particular preconceived answer. Examples. A search for is rent control unfair to landlords is likely to get results that describe rent control as unfair to landlords. 
A better search might be something like rent control landlords. A search for are immigrants hurting the economy is likely to get results that argue that immigrants hurt the economy. A better search might be something like economic effects of immigration. Brainstorming related terms. Describing main concepts. In many instances, there are various ways that a main concept can be described. Not every information source will use the same term to describe the same thing. Take the topic of genetically modified food, for example. Though genetically modified food is commonly used, terms like GMO, genetically modified organism, genetic engineering, and genetic modification are often used by scientists to describe the same thing. This is also a good time to look at your main concepts and decide if the keywords you've selected to describe them are too broad or too narrow. In the previous example, using the key phrase genetic engineering when looking for information about specific types of organisms that have been genetically modified may be too broad of a term that yields irrelevant results. Also keep in mind the type of information you're searching for. If you need scholarly research articles, scientific terminology is more likely to be used in those resources. If you're searching for information that may appear in popular periodicals, like magazines and newspapers, more general everyday language is likely to be used. For example, myocardial infarction versus heart attack. Brainstorming alternatives. It can be helpful to list your keywords in any alternative or related keywords or phrases that may be helpful to your search. Related keywords are terms that are synonymous or similar in meaning to keywords. Main concepts are not always described using the same term. For example, a more scientific information source may use the term feline instead of the term cat. You may want to return to those reference sources you used for finding background information on your topic to see what terms and phrases were used. You may also try searching in a thesaurus for some synonyms. And you may even come back to this step later in the research process, once you've completed some initial searches and discovered some helpful new alternative terms. Some databases will also list related terms, which can be helpful for modifying your search. On the other hand, some keywords are unique and have no other terms that could be used in their place. If we return to our example of the effect of divorce on students' GPA, we might look at these main concepts and keywords and alternative or related concepts or keywords. Divorce might also be referred to as separation, split up, or parental conflict. Students' GPA might also be referred to as grade point average, academic performance, or academic achievement and high school may be referred to as school or secondary school. Creating a search statement. Combining your keywords. Once you've dissected your research question, found the main concepts, and listed several keywords to describe these concepts, for example, synonyms, narrower terms, broader terms, it's time to combine those keywords in meaningful ways in order to perform a search for information resources. The combination of terms using various search strategies called a search statement will help you get more precise results than typing in a whole research question or just a few words into a search bar. Search statements are almost like a set of instructions given to whatever search option you're using, for example, a library catalog or a library database that describe what you want to find. Boolean operators. Named after the mathematician George Boole, Boolean operators are used as conjunctions that combine or exclude certain keywords in your search. Though Boolean operators are used in logic, mathematics, and computer science, there are three common Boolean operators used by search engines, like library catalogs, academic databases, and some online search engines. Think of Boolean operators as instructions that tell a search engine what to do with your keywords. 
Some search tools need Boolean operators to be typed in all capital letters in order for them to work. So it's a good idea to always type them in all caps whenever you're using them. AND. The Boolean operator AND is used between all the keywords and phrases that you want to include in your search. When creating a search statement to find information on the effects of divorce on a high school student's GPA, the Boolean AND operator would go between our three keywords and phrases. Divorce, AND, grade point average, AND, high school. By doing this, the information sources that will be returned in the results will all contain all three of these keywords or phrases somewhere between them. OR. The Boolean operator OR is used to search for alternative keywords. Remember, there are many words that one could use to describe the same concept, and OR gives you the option to search for multiple, synonymous terms at once. Instead of searching for various alternative keywords in different searches, OR allows you to search for multiple alternative keywords in the same search grade point average, or academic achievement. NOT. The Boolean NOT excludes certain keywords from your search. This Boolean operator is not a commonly used one, but can be very helpful if you're getting many irrelevant results. Boolean NOT is best used when using keywords that have associations with multiple things. For instance, if you were trying to search for information on the animal Jaguar, and kept getting too many results about the car brand Jaguar, you could use the NOT operator to exclude the word car from your search. Jaguar NOT car would exclude any information sources that contained the word car. Be aware that using NOT can exclude relevant results as well. If an article or website that had some great information on the animal Jaguar, but just so happened to mention the word car in the text somewhere, it would be excluded from your results. For example, Washington, not George, when trying to find information on Washington the state, not George Washington. Mexico, not city, when trying to find information on the entire country of Mexico, not Mexico City. And Apple, not fruit, when trying to find information on Apple the computer company, and not Apple's the fruit. Phrase searching. Phrase searching allows you to narrow down your search by specifying the exact order you want certain keywords to appear. Phrase searching means placing a phrase, two or more keywords, in between quotation marks that ensures that those words stay in that exact order during the search. The entire phrase will be searched for instead of the individual keywords. Phrase searching is important to use when searching for specific quotes or names. Quotation marks around two or more keywords, also known as a phrase, will keep those words in that exact order during your search. For example, Searching for the two keywords computer monitor without the quotation marks may find information sources that have nothing to do with computer monitors, but still contain the two words computer and monitor. For example, an article about monitoring computer usage. Searching for computer monitor in quotation marks instead locks those keywords together as a unit and will only return results with that phrase computer monitor. Unless you're searching for a single keyword on its own, it's a good idea to use phrase searching to make sure you're getting the most relevant results. For example, you might try grade point average in quotation marks or academic achievement in quotation marks. Nesting. Just like Boolean, nesting is another concept taken from mathematics that's useful during information searches. When you're using more than one type of Boolean operator in your search statement, nesting, using parentheses around portions of your search statement, will help to organize what Boolean operators go with what keywords. Without nesting, most search engines and library databases will read your search statement from left to right, applying the Boolean operators in that sequence. Let's look at two examples. Divorce and, in parentheses, 
grade point average in quotation marks or academic achievement in quotation marks and parentheses and high school in quotation marks. Or you could try divorce and in quotation marks grade point average or academic achievement in quotation marks and high school in quotation marks. In the first example, the search will yield results that contain either key phrase grade point average or academic achievement. But in the second example without the parentheses, the search will either look for information sources with both the keyword divorce and the key phrase grade point average, or it will find information sources with the keyword high school and the key phrase academic achievement. The use of parentheses in this search statement would ensure that the Boolean or is applied to the two alternative keywords. Example, library databases will have the option of either a basic or advanced search. A basic search will require that you type out Boolean operators in all capital letters and the parentheses used for nesting. The advanced search will offer you drop-down menus for Boolean operators. If your search statement requires nesting, type the portion of the search statement that would have gone in parentheses all on one line. See the screenshots below to view the differences between a basic and advanced search. And here there's a screenshot showing EBSCOhost's basic search with the Boolean operators written out in all caps phrase searching used, and parentheses used to nest the portion of the search statement that uses Boolean OR. There's another screenshot that shows EBSCOhost's advanced search option, where Boolean AND is selected from the drop-down boxes between the search boxes, and the portion of the search statement that uses Boolean OR is written all on one line instead of typing parentheses. Truncation. There may be times that you want to include all the different word forms of a certain keyword in your search without having to use the Boolean OR and type in each of the different word forms. To use truncation, type in the root word followed by a symbol. In most cases, the symbol used for truncating words is the asterisk, but this may vary depending on the search engine or library database you're using. For example, searching for child asterisk would return results containing the words child, children, childhood, childish, etc. Listen to the following video for an explanation of truncation, as well as phrase searching and nesting. Welcome to part two of McMaster Library's Boolean searching series. In part one, we established that the Boolean operators and, or, not, are effective search tools. This is a great starting point. But if we don't format our searches correctly, the search engine may still have a difficult time understanding what we are asking it to do. By using the Boolean modifiers, quotations, asterisks, and brackets, we can ensure that we are directing the search engine to find exactly what we are looking for. First, let's talk about quotations. If a phrase is put within quotation marks, the database knows that it must find articles that contain the quoted phrase exactly as contained within the quotation. So, if we use the same example from part one of this series, where we were looking for information on cats and dementia therapy, putting dementia therapy in quotes tells the database to only retrieve articles that contain the phrase dementia therapy. Quotes can be useful in narrowing search results. They allow us to package concepts that are more than one word together, instead of searching each word of the phrase independent of the others. The asterisk is another important tool used in searching. The asterisk is a way in which we can take into consideration the many different ways we can express a word. So instead of having to tell the database to search for documents containing the words therapy or therapies or therapeutic, we can simply truncate the word after the last shared letter, in this case P, and add an asterisk. 
This tells the database that as long as the word begins with T-H-E-R-A-P, it doesn't matter what the rest of the word looks like. So, if you are searching for a word that has many different variations, think of all the variations of the word, truncate the word after the last shared letter, and add an asterisk. This will ensure that the database knows you want all the variations of the word possible, and broaden the set of relevant results retrieved. Brackets, also known as parentheses, are super important to include when searching. Remember back in high school algebra when you learned about bed mass? The rules of bed mass tell us to perform the operations within brackets before anything else. Search engines work the same way. Brackets are a way to direct the database as to which Boolean operators to apply first. Say I enter in a search like this. The search engine will probably read my search from left to right, applying the operators in a different order than I intended. By adding brackets, we are able to tell the database exactly what terms and Boolean operators belong together. So with brackets, my search should look a little something like this. By including these brackets, I'm able to communicate to the database that I wanted to retrieve documents that contain some variation of the word cat, but not pcat. And these documents must also contain some variation of the word therapy or treatment. Without brackets, we can't be sure the search engine has interpreted our search the same way that we do, which could lead us to some wonky results. In summary, quotation marks are a way in which we can tell the search engine to retrieve exact phrases. Asterisks are a way in which we can tell the search engine to retrieve multiple variations of a word. And lastly, brackets are a way in which we can communicate to the database which terms and operators belong together. Remember to consult McMaster Library's Boolean Cheat Sheet if you need any further clarification or just a simple refresher. If you have any questions, librarians are here to help. Visit us in any of our libraries on campus or book a research consultation for one-on-one -on -one assistance. Conclusion. This chapter covered what research questions are, why they're important, and how to create one from your research topic. The research question is the main question you'll be trying to answer and will guide your research. You may find that you'll change your research question, keywords, and search statement as you go about your research and learn more about your topic. Avoiding confirmation bias in searches from Web Literacy for Student Fact Checkers. Was 9-11 a hoax? Let's find out. We type in, was 9-11 a hoax? And we get, here there's a screenshot of the Google search results. The first result is 9-11 was a hoax. The American government killed its own people. The second is 9-11 conspiracy theories from Wikipedia. The third is the top 40 reasons to doubt the official story from 911truth.org, and so on and so forth. Well, look at that. Not only the top result says that the attack on 9-11 was fake, the top five results do. To the untrained eye, it looks like the press has been hiding something from you. But of course the 9-11 attacks were not faked. So why does Google return these results? The main reason here is the term. The term hoax is applied to the 9-11 attacks primarily on conspiracy sites. So when Google looks for clusters on that term and links to documents containing that term, it finds that conspiracy sites rank highly. Think about it. Reputable physics journals, policy magazines, and national newspapers are not likely to run headlines asking if the attacks were a hoax. But conspiracy sites are. The same holds true even for more benign searches. The question, are we eating too much protein, has Google return a panel from the Huffington Post, now HuffPost, and a website from a vegan advocacy group. And here there's a screenshot of the Google search, are we eating too much protein.
The top result comes from the Huffington Post and is called the protein myth, why you need less protein than you think. To avoid confirmation bias in searches, avoid asking questions that imply a certain answer. If I ask, did the Holocaust happen, for example, I'm implying that it is likely that the Holocaust was fake. If you want information on the Holocaust, sometimes it's better just to start with a simple noun search, for example, Holocaust, and read summaries that show how we know what happened. Avoid using terms that imply a certain answer. As an example, if you query women 72 cents on the dollar, you'll likely get articles that tell you women make 72 cents on the dollar. But if you search for women 80 cents on the dollar, you'll get articles that say women make 80 cents on the dollar. Searching for general articles on the wage gap might be a better choice. Avoid culturally loaded terms. As an example, the term black on white crime is a term used by white supremacist groups, but is not a term generally used by sociologists. As such, if you put that term into the Google search bar, you are going to get some sites that will carry the perspective of white supremacists and be lousy sources of serious sociological analysis. Plan to reformulate. Think carefully about what constitutes an authoritative source before you search. Once you search, you'll find you have an irrepressible urge to click into the top results. If you can, think of what sorts of sources and information you would like to see in the results before you search. If you don't see those in the results, fight the impulse to click on forward and reformulate your search. Scan results for better terms. Maybe your first question about whether the Holocaust happened turned up a lousy result set in general, but did pop up a Wikipedia article on Holocaust denialism. Use that term to make a better search for what you actually want to know. The Top 10 Limitations of ChatGPT by Bernard Marr, published in Forbes magazine, March 3, 2023. As an AI language model, ChatGPT is capable of performing a variety of tasks like language translation, writing songs, answering research questions, and even generating computer code. With its impressive abilities, ChatGPT has quickly become a popular tool for various applications, from chatbots to content creation. But despite its advanced capabilities, ChatGPT is not without limitations. As with any AI technology, ChatGPT has certain weaknesses and challenges that can impact its performance and accuracy. Here, we'll explore some of the limitations of ChatGPT, ranging from its inability to understand complex contexts to its reliance on biased data. By understanding the limitations of ChatGPT, we can gain a better understanding of the potential drawbacks and challenges of using AI language models in various contexts. Lack of common sense. While ChatGPT can generate human-like responses and has access to a large amount of information, it does not possess human-level common sense, and the model also lacks the background knowledge we have. This means that ChatGPT may sometimes provide nonsensical or inaccurate responses to certain questions or situations. Lack of emotional intelligence. While ChatGPT can generate responses that seem empathetic, it does not possess true emotional intelligence. It cannot detect subtle emotional cues or respond appropriately to complex emotional situations. Limitations in understanding context. ChatGPT has difficulty understanding context, especially sarcasm and humor. While ChatGPT is proficient in language processing, it can struggle to grasp the subtle nuances of human communication. For example, if a user were to use sarcasm or humor in their message, ChatGPT may fail to pick up on the intended meaning and instead provide a response that is inappropriate or irrelevant. 
trouble generating long-form structured content. At this time, ChatGPT has some trouble generating long-form structured content. While the model is capable of creating coherent and grammatically correct sentences, it may struggle to produce lengthy pieces of content that follow a particular structure, format, or narrative. As a result, ChatGPT is currently best suited for generating shorter pieces of content like summaries, bullet points, or brief explanations. Limitations in handling multiple tasks at the same time. The model performs best when it's given a single task or objective to focus on. If you ask ChatGPT to perform multiple tasks at once, it will struggle to prioritize them, which will lead to a decrease in effectiveness and accuracy. Potentially biased responses. ChatGPT is trained on a large set of text data, and that data may contain biases or prejudices. This means the AI may sometimes generate responses that are unintentionally biased or discriminatory. Limited knowledge. Although ChatGPT has access to a large amount of information, it's not able to access all of the knowledge that humans have. It may not be able to answer questions about very specific or niche topics, and it may not be aware of recent developments or changes in certain fields. Accuracy problems or grammatical issues. ChatGPT's sensitivity to typos, grammatical errors, and misspellings is limited at the moment. The model may also produce responses that are technically correct, but may not be entirely accurate in terms of context or relevance. This limitation can be particularly challenging when processing complex or specialized information, where accuracy and precision are crucial. You should always take steps to verify the information ChatGPT generates. Need for fine-tuning. If you need to use ChatGPT for very specific use cases, you may need to fine-tune the model to get what you need. Fine-tuning involves training the model on a specific set of data to optimize its performance for a particular task or objective and can be time-consuming and resource-intensive. Computational costs and power. ChatGPT is a highly complex and sophisticated AI language model that requires substantial computational resources to operate efficiently which means running the model can be expensive and may require access to specialized hardware and software systems. Additionally, running ChatGPT on low-end hardware or systems with limited computational power can result in slower processing times, reduced accuracy, and other performance issues. Organizations should carefully consider their computational resources and capabilities before using ChatGPT.